think the longest couple I've I have in my book it are um, Lillian Cooper and Josephine Bedford, who were women who lived in Brisbane. Lillian Cooper was Queensland's first female doctor, and Josephine Bedford worked in like the playground movement and um, helped establish Queensland's first public playground, which is very interesting to me because I'd never thought I would be reading up about um, public playgrounds in Australia. But there you go. And, yeah, they lived... They immigrated to Queensland from England in their early 20s and they lived together for about like 60 years, which is a very long-term relationship. And I think the the level of like devotion to each other to and um, commitment to live together that long, again, begs the question of whether they were just good friends or if there was something more to that relationship. Yeah, absolutely. I guess we do assume a lot about Australia's queer history uh, that, I mean, what do you think that we assume, sorry, that maybe might not be quite true? And did you go into this book with any assumptions that you later found out weren't true? Yeah, I guess I, I guess everyone comes to queer history with presumptions. And um, I think the, one of the biggest like challenges and uh, with working with queer history is that like you need solid evidence to try and write about these histories and to try and like prove that two women might have been in a relationship whereas the more I read about how other lesbian historians have gone about like their practice and everything is that you're trying to read into like the absence of things and um, read between the lines and everything and kind of build a context around a certain relationship because um, it's easy to – a lot of people will presume that a man and a woman were together and they were were straight, they were a straight couple because they were married or something, even if it was a very unhealthy relationship or if they never had children, kind of like um, for a very, like, obvious example, like Virginia Woolf and her husband – People, people have written about them in the past and they apparent. I don't think they had a sexual relationship, but they were still very loving. And, of course, Virginia had relationships with women outside of that marriage. But, yeah, there's, there's a thing where it's like if you want to write queer history, you need all of this, like, evidence to, to prove that these women had a sexual or, or a romantic relationship and a lot of this evidence just isn't available because it's so private and intimate. Um so you have to kind of work around it by thinking of like thinking what else kind of makes a queer relationship and what else like makes a queer identity, I guess. Yeah. And I guess, well, you know, you've kind of alluded to this evidence being one challenge of telling queer, his- queer history. Why else have you found it to be difficult or is it difficult to find these stories from queer history? Yeah, I was going to say like trying to find them is also just a challenge in itself because especially with women's history, I wanted to write this book specifically about queer women because I thought um, all of the history that's available, there's a lot that's written about men's experiences and everything, which is great and we need that. But I also felt that like women's history was getting a little bit left behind in from an Australian perspective anyway. So, and there's lots of different reasons for that. One of the main reasons is because um, male homosexuality was criminalized. So there's lots of records and there's lots of like criminal records and documentation and everything. And there, it was more visible. Whereas 
lesbianism and other like queer behavior between women was a lot more invisible and private and also women just could just kind of get away with it with being having like these personal intense relationships more than men could because of like different like gender stereotypes and everything so there's a, like a lot of historians question whether um, people like Lillian and Josephine and other women who lived together for such a long time they question whether it was actually a romantic relationship because it was it was normal for women to like to be so close and to hug and kiss and everything and it's just like yeah well how much of it is normal and how much of it can be interpreted as as queer so yeah i guess it speaks a lot to i i mean not coming into this mm. as a, somebody who doesn't necessarily know a lot of queer history mm. it it does speak to like the modern experience of you know lesbianism and femme queers and how that kind of relationship is very diminished or it can mm. be very um viewed as very unserious because history is like this weird thing right like everyone's going to experience things in a different way and the book spans from like the early 1840s to the 1980s so that's a lot of time and a lot of like social movements take place so um each chapter is kind of in a different located in a different like uh, period of time so i think the way that these women experienced relationships throughout history throughout like that hundred or so years differed a lot. I found that there was like connections with like the kinds of women who I was reading about and writing about, like some of them were like business owners or they were academics or they worked in the theater or things like that. Um, And I think that's also that also might just be the case because people, they were like educated and everything so that there there was more material available to read about them because they went to university or they wrote letters or they left diaries behind. So yeah, there was more to read up about them and everything. Um, whether they inform modern queer relationships, I think there's, I think there are like some similarities and everything. Were there any discoveries that came about that really had an impact on you or informed your own personal queer experience? I think I resonated with some of the stories because when I was first researching the history, I was at university. I had just recently come out. So I was kind of like experiencing some of my like first, like first kiss, first date and everything. So I think like my research and my my own queer experiences was running like parallel to each other. So there, I think maybe I like read more into things because I was coming at it with like a, a very like fresh queer lens and everything. And I think probably the one that I resonated with the most was like the story of Lesbia Harford and Katie Lush, who I talk about all the time because I was obsessed with these women and Lesbia Harford was a poet and they both lived in like the, from like the 1890s to like 1920s to 30s. And they were both at Melbourne Uni together at the same time. Katie Lush was a philosophy tutor and um, Lesbia Harford was a law student who also wrote poetry. And they were both very much into like socialism and um, like the anti-war movement during World War One. 
And I think I related more to Lesbia because she her her poetry was like full of like um like yearning, like gay yearning pretty much. Um very sapphic just in like the just in like the writing of it. And also quite ahead of its time as well because she wrote about like her her affections and feelings for both men and women and she also wrote poetry about like menstruation and and like she had a chronic illness as well she had a heart condition so she wrote about her experiences with that and a lot of these poems weren't published throughout her life but um probably like maybe for various reasons and maybe because they were unpublished during her life she was she let herself have that freedom to write about things that she might not have otherwise written about so i think i related to lesbia because of like the the very like yearning sort of poetry because some people think that she and Katie Lush had a relationship because they they had like a a strong friendship but there's nothing on Katie's side to say that she reciprocated the feelings because there's not a lot she hasn't left any personal papers or writing of her own so we've only really got lesbia's side of the story and some of the poems are a bit indicate that Katie did not reciprocate these feelings like she didn't want to be in this relationship with Lesbia and I think at the time because I had a crush on one of my friends who we dated for a bit but then she like didn't want to continue the, the relationship so I was kind of putting myself in Lesbia's shoes a little bit um yeah which I think I think that's just like I think that's just because of my own youth and my own like baby queer identity. You're like trying to like look and look and look at all these stories and like put yourself in their shoes, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. It's very much like a kind of projecting and finding yes. yourself yeah. um in what you're kind of looking at. It was really fun and um at times I I got a bit anxious because I was like, oh, who am who am I? Like is this ethically okay to like write about these women who are who are dead and don't have a voice of their own like they can't they can't speak for themselves they can't be just like you're getting it all wrong when we weren't queer because maybe they weren't maybe they were so i had a bit of a like a personal crisis at the beginning of my honors thesis when i was writing it but um then i did i did like finally realize that it did straight historians write about people all the time and just kind of like I was just like, oh, they're straight. They were obviously just good friends and everything with no other alternative evidence to say to say that they weren't. So I was just like, I might as well just write through what I think and through my own interpretation of the evidence, which was that these relationships had the potential to be queer. So, yeah, it was really fun to go on that research journey and find stories that I hadn't known about before I'd never read about and because a lot of these stories were only they're very like they when you go through like when you go th- when you study through history like throughout high school and university you're kind of like reading about all of like these like big world events and big names and everything whereas if you kind of look at something like queer history that's kind of a bit more niche and um, it's like a personal history so you're looking for people in in places where you wouldn't usually look, I guess. So, sorry, I'm just kind of like rambling, but... No, that's the point. It's (laughs) it's good to hear these stories. That's the thing. I guess more to that point as well, you know, at being 
kind of very early on in your mm. queer journey as well. Did you struggle with any sort of like imposter syndrome when writing the book? Mm. Was there any sort of feelings of I don't have enough experience to be doing this and, mm. you know, having that thought of maybe somebody else should do it or like that kind of thing? Yeah, I think I did. And also I think like a lot of – I think like a lot of writers go through in that sort of imposter, sy- um, imposter syndrome anyway. So um, – yeah, I definitely went through that. And even throughout, like, even after I graduated and continued writing the book, I had these moments of being like, oh, I don't know if I'm the right person to tell the story. But um, I don't know. I feel like as a as a queer woman, I I do have some sort of experience in order to write about these things. And there, there, there hasn't really been any any other books published that are exclusively about like the queer woman's experience in Australian history so I mean you're either you're either going to sit around waiting for someone to write it for you or you have to do the research and the work yourself so yeah it's such a good point like the the imposter syndrome is so rampant even Mm -hmm. here like at sin yeah um, within the show specifically there are often even within myself times where you kind of question like oh I'm not kind of queer enough to be doing this and Mm -hmm. it's like you know if you're not if you're not doing it, nobody else kind of will mm. in that sort of sense. It's also the whole thing of, and like to you especially, like people who are in it for the wrong reasons aren't questioning if they're in it for the wrong reasons. Mm. So you have to be like assured in yourself and it's mm. and such a beautiful thing has come of it. Um, what would you, I guess, like to change about the process of academia and within queer histories in making it more accessible? Yeah, um, that's a hard it's a hard question to grapple with because obviously there's been like lots of discussions about how like Australians, like the education curriculum should be changed or not changed. And it's been a few years since I went to high school. So I'm not, I'm not sure. I do remember like my, my school was fairly progressive in the sense that it was a, it was a public school and there were a lot of queer people out in my year level. We then they recognised, like, where at Purple Day and Ida Hobbit Day and everything. So that was great. Um, but where, where, like, the education side of it, you didn't really learn much about queer history. I feel like the, the most, like, kind of sense of, like, the most discussion around queer people was probably, like, in literature classes where you studied, like, Oscar Wilde or something. High schools don't even need to go that in-depth about queer history, but I think, like, there needs to be some sort of, like, recognition or acknowledgement that not all these people, that there is a queer history in Australia and um, it's not so much a recent thing. I also think, like, histories about, even, like, our more modern history, like, the the 70s, like, liberation, the gay liberation movement is so fascinating and so fun to learn about. And even, like, the AIDS crisis is another, like, important milestone and, like, such a big moment in, like, medical history as well and social history. So to just kind of, like, completely ignore that and to just focus on like because usually Australian history is always just like convicts all of these things that are kind of like tying themselves into like an Australian national identity and everything so I think we need to like rethink of like how we want to um to teach an Australian national identity and how we want to represent ourselves in our past and to think about because all of those events are of course like centered usually around men as well like, um, yeah, so I think women get left behind 
to. And also it just kind of like becomes very repetitive and the way that it's taught is a bit dull and boring. I remember there was, there weren't a lot of people just studying Australian history with me at high school. I think the class was like eight people in total. And there was this like sense that Australian history was boring. And I mean, it doesn't have to be because history isn't actually boring. I think it's just like the way that it's taught and the trying to like allow students um, the opportunity to find certain aspects of history, which they find interesting because there's so much. And I feel like we focus on like such, um, such repetitive things that we can, we can open up our ideas because people think, again, people think that history is like just about the big names and the big events, whereas we can kind of nuance it a little. Yeah, it's definitely something that has to change, but it's a change that we're slowly seeing happen and yeah. also indeed a change that you're helping to make. How how did you go about writing this book? Mm. How was it to choose what stories you were going to focus on? Yeah, so I kind of, I went about, because what I wanted from the book was to have this like accessible resource that you can you could purchase quite easily if they were like a bookstore or online because a lot of queer history is a little bit, it's a bit harder to find or it's like in in books that are that were published 20 or 30 years ago so they're harder to access. Um, so while I was writing the book, I think I chose stories that I knew that I would be able to write a chapter on because some there are some other women that I came across but they're – all I all I could read, all I could find about them was like a, a paragraph or a few sentences. So you needed something with like a bit more, a bit more material and evidence behind it. And also something that I I kind of like also pictured it like in a as like a chronological timeline. So I, I was trying to like find stories at like er, like every every two or three decades at least to fill that timeline. So yeah, and I also just chose stories which I thought were important or which thought which felt um which I felt were like underwritten or just not not really brought to the public attention as much as other stories. You had to be so selective with the stories that you mm. did choose. Were there any stories that you kind of regret having cut from the book or wished that there was more info on so that mm. you could tell that story? Yeah, there are I think there's some of the stories that I didn't include in the book. I did it because like there are other, there's like they've been written about elsewhere in much more detail. And I didn't think that I had anything like new to contribute. Like um, Alice Anderson is a woman who had like this all female garage out in Kew. And the author Loretta Smith wrote a biography of her recently. So I do mention I do mention Alice briefly in my book, but um she could have had a whole chapter in her own right. But again, I think she's already got a whole biography dedicated to her, so I thought there was no point in including a whole another chapter when I didn't have any new evidence around it. But um yeah, I think since kind of like wrapping up the writing of the book, I've come across other stories of women and I'm just like oh I had no idea like I hadn't like known of them before and they could have quite easily um I think I'm pretty sure I've kind of forgotten her name but I think her name was like Gwen Gwen Plum or something who I've heard of recently and she 
oh, sorry, I don't know enough about her to actually go into detail. But there are just like, yeah, there are just other figures who keep, who I hear of and I'm just like, oh, they could have gone into the book. And I think, yeah, I think it was impossible to write something so comprehensive because there are all these stories. And I know that there are stories that are still yet to be found um, or that I just never access because they're like, because I, there wasn't, I think a lot of the stories I wrote about were like from Melbourne and Sydney as well, because that's a, a lot, there's a lot of queer history in Melbourne and Sydney. Um, I really tried to find more like in the other states in Australia, but it was quite difficult. And I'm not sure if that's just because I was looking at the wrong archives or if I needed to be like physically in that state to kind of like, cause some, some things you just hear from other people and you like follow up leads, I guess. Yeah, I guess it's it's you've touched on that. It's being also somebody who is quite literally writing on and providing a lot of this evidence that hasn't previously been accessible. Yeah, it's hard to be providing that and making it comprehensive, as you've said. Mm. Um, and I guess we've touched on this throughout the interview, but I do want to ask: What is your relationship to the queer community, and has this become more fully formed through your writing process? Mm. I'm a queer. I'm a queer person, and I came out. I came out actually after the um, same-sex marriage results were announced, I think like a month or so after that. So, which was like, it was a weird year for me as well because I was like kind of questioning whether I was um, like bisexual or queer. And then I was just like, oh, am I just like having these these thoughts because of what's happening around me? Am I just like responding to that? But then, uh, yeah, I think I was just in denial a bit. But I think throughout the throughout writing the book and because it's been like like five or six years now, I'm quite um, fully like like pro- probably like fully comfortable in my identity and how I see myself and how I see myself like within the the LGBTQ community. It's hard to like think of yourself in this community and like how how you kind of um, represent it and everything. But um, I'm not like a, I'm not like a public leader or anything. But now I suppose I'm like a, I'm a writer and historian of the LGBTQ community. So I do have one final question for you. Mm-hmm. If someone was writing this book 200 years from now, which queer women would you think that they would write about? Oh my goodness, 200 years from now. If I was writing a history in 200 years, I don't think I would be writing about like the big obvious names though because I'm quite interested in stories that aren't as uh, aren't as well known so we know because there there would be so much to choose from in from like the 2000s to the 2020s because obviously we have so much queer content and so many like queer icons like in pop culture but also like in in the like the political field as well I mean my favorite band at the moment at the moment is Moona so maybe someone needs to write a queer history about Moon as a band. (laughs) 